So Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 38. Great. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, He was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Well, I'm very excited for us to be starting uh, this new sermon series tonight in the book of Luke. Uh, If you've been at Uni Church for long, you'll know that Jesus is pretty central to uh, what we're on about. We talk about him every week. Uh, But over the next 14 weeks, it's an opportunity as we work through Luke chapters 1 to 9 um, to dig deeper and to, to look again more closely at Jesus, to consider carefully the evidence for Jesus and also the claims that he makes about himself. As Abby mentioned, Luke's gospel is one of uh, four biographies, four accounts that we have uh, in the New Testament. And tonight, as we look at chapter one, it helps us to answer some important questions about this gospel that will help frame us over the coming weeks. Questions like, who is Luke? Who is this guy who who wrote down this biography of Jesus for us? What can we know about Luke? Uh, Why did he write this biography of Jesus? What was his purpose? And how did he write it? You know, what kind of methodology did he use? Those are some big and important questions, so let's dive in and find out. Uh, Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says this, "Uh, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, the first thing to notice about Luke from these verses is that Luke is not an eyewitness of Jesus. Did you notice how he talks about eyewitnesses in the third person? And he says, they, those eyewitnesses, handed down their accounts to us. So if you look at Matthew's gospel or John's gospel, those are written by direct eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were both apostles, which are Jesus' kind of inner uh, early church leaders, people who knew him face to face. But Luke wasn't one of those. So you might be wondering, what business does Luke have writing a biography of Jesus if he wasn't even himself an eyewitness. And part of the answer to that from these verses that we get is that as a historian, Luke has a keen interest in piecing together different eyewitness accounts into one orderly account. Uh, He makes this clear in verses 3 to 4. Have a look. He says, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So it's kind of like a journalist who wasn't at the scene of a crime themselves, but by interviewing many different eyewitnesses, carefully investigating and talking to people, comparing things, they're able to piece together a fuller picture than what any of one of those eyewitnesses might know on their own. And it's important to know that as Luke does this, he's not writing centuries later based on mere hearsay and legends, 
No, Luke himself was a close associate of the apostles and the earliest followers of Jesus. And we know this from a few places. Uh, One comes from Luke's writings themselves. So you see, Luke didn't uh, just write the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. So if you go in your New Testament, you've got Luke and then John and then Acts. And Luke and Acts are actually a two-part volume. Uh, When you look at Acts chapter 1, it begins with, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, and it continues on. And so Luke and Acts are a two-part work. The Gospel of Luke covers the life of Jesus, and then Acts covers the history of the early church as Jesus continued to work through His people by His Spirit. Now, as Luke writes the book of Acts, he writes most of the book in the third person. You know, they did this, he did this, it's about them and what they're doing, which is what you'd expect when you're reading history. But occasionally, it slips into the first person. So, for example, check out Acts chapter 20. Luke records this. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples. So, Paul's an apostle, one of um, the early, early church leaders who had seen Jesus. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He, Paul, travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by, and now he names some of Paul's travelling companions, by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. You notice the switch from talking about them to suddenly Luke's describing what Paul and them are doing, and then suddenly Luke is among them. They've picked him up as a fellow traveling companion. Now, that switch is subtle, and if you're not looking out for it, it's easy to miss, but its implications are huge. It means that Luke was himself an associate of the apostles like Paul and the other. There are other passages in Acts that do the same, but you get the idea. And not only did uh, Luke happen to travel with Paul once or twice, but he seems to be quite close to him. So in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he writes to Timothy, who's one of those traveling companions just mentioned, and says, Do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So picture Paul, poor fella. He's been deserted by his mates. He's in prison. He's he's almost on his own, except that only is with him when everyone else has fled. And Paul's writing to Timothy to call for more backup. And one of the final things we we, uh, learn about Luke from the rest of the New Testament that's helpful for us to know is that Luke was a doctor. Uh, We know this from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, where he makes an offhand comment about our dear friend Luke, the doctor. And what this uh, tells us is that Luke would have been well-educated and had a keen mind. And Luke uses his keen mind, as well as his relationships and ability to meet and interview many of the direct eyewitnesses of Jesus, Luke uses all of this to write his gospel. Now in Luke uh, 1, 1 1-4, we get some other insights into his methodology as well. 
Uh, we've already noticed that knew those who from the first were eyewitnesses in verse 2, talked to them and interviewed them and so on. But he also used written sources. Do you notice what it says there in verse 1? Many have taken, undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He's talking about what Jesus has fulfilled among them. Now, the language of drawing up an account refers specifically to written sources. People have written down things that Jesus did and said. They've written them down because they're so important and want to be shared. And notice he doesn't say there's just one or two, but many of these. So Luke had many sources that he could draw on and compare. Now, we're pretty confident that Mark is one of these sources that he had access to. Gospel of Matthew is a, is a possibility, though historians debate that, quite possibly not. But without doubt, there are many other written sources that Luke had access to as well. People had written down the sayings of Jesus and records of what he did. And Luke didn't just uh, look at all these material and blindly copy-paste it into a Word document. No, verse 3 tells us that he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Written sources, oral sources, combing through all the evidence and putting together an orderly account. Now notice... Uh, This isn't the language of a crazed fanatic just making up legends, is it? It's not the language of a naive person just believing and passing on whatever they've been told. No, it's the language of a careful historian with good sources and good methodology who's taking seriously the pursuit of truth. And this is important to point out because there are some common misconceptions out there about Jesus and the Bible. Some people think that the Bible is a book of of myths and fables, of legends that were written hundreds of years after the events took place. But when you look at Luke's gospel, it's crystal clear that that's not the case. And not just Luke's gospel, but even think about what we're reading there in Acts and 2 Timothy and Colossians. It's clearly talking about real people traveling to real places that you can still go to in the Mediterranean. It's all situated in the very real Greek or Roman first century world. This isn't the stuff of myths and fables. This is the stuff of history. And Luke didn't write his gospel hundreds of years later. No, we don't know the exact year when it was written, but we can narrow it down fairly closely. Uh, Here's a timeline of the first century uh, AD. Now, I've mentioned the Apostle Paul a couple of times, uh, the Apostle and eyewitness of Jesus, who Luke knew well. And the Bible doesn't tell us when Paul died, But we have historical sources from outside the Bible that tell us that he died in the mid-60s AD, beheaded under the Roman Emperor Nero, after a period of being imprisoned in Rome under guard. And that helps us date when the book of Luke and Acts were written. Uh, Because when you read the end of Acts, like if you go home tonight and were to flip open to Acts chapter 28, you'll see it finishes with Paul imprisoned in Rome, still alive and still waiting for his trial before the emperor. When Acts is written, it ends with Paul's fate still unknown. Will he live? Will he die? They don't know. And so we can be fairly confident that Acts was written just before Paul's death in the early to mid-60s. Now, since Acts is Luke's second book, that means his gospel, the, the former book written first, can be narrowed down to the early 60s AD at the latest. Now, when you keep in mind that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead uh, in 33 AD, that means Luke's gospel was written about 30 years after Jesus' death. Now, uh, some people who don't know much about ancient history think, man, 30 years sounds like a very long time gap. 
you know, like, wow, 30 years, I mean, a lot of us haven't even been alive for that long. I can't remember what I ate for dinner last week. How would people remember things in 30 years? Like, that seems pretty crazy. Uh, But what a lot of people don't realize is that from the standpoint of ancient historiography, 30 years is actually a tiny time gap. For most ancient biographies, the gap is way bigger. Think of Alexander the Great, for example. Uh, You might have heard of him. He's a fairly well-known dude in history. But the best biography that we have of his life was written 400 years after his death. And that kind of time span is very common when you're dealing with ancient history. Compared with that, Luke and the other Gospels were written extremely early. And in 30 years' time, uh, will you remember what you had for dinner yesterday? Of course not. Uh, Though some of you are like, challenge accepted right now and are deeply imprinting that pasta bake into your, you know, cerebral cortex. But no, you're probably not going to remember things like that. But you'd be amazed at how much people do remember when it comes to significant things. And what's more, the time gap is small enough that when Luke wrote his account, there were many live eyewitnesses to double and triple check. You know, a few weeks ago, my wife Alex and I watched the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary. Um, I guess she's just really into bodybuilding or something. Uh, But anyway, she really wanted to watch it, so of course I I lovingly agreed. Uh, But you know, Arnold is in his 70s now, he's 75. But as he and others spoke about his first Mr. Universe competition and first time he won Mr. Olympia over 50 years ago, they're talking about it like it was yesterday. This happened and that happened and he said that. And they're interviewing multiple people so that if one person forgot one part, someone else's memory could fill in the gaps. And if that's true over a 50-year period for a competition where men just get in their undies and rub oil over each other, how much more true is that going to be over a 30-year period for the most significant and earth-shattering events in history? You know, if you were one of the people who met Jesus while he walked the earth, Do you think that you would forget that as quickly as what you ate for dinner on Tuesday? Of course not. You know, you watch World War II documentaries and these old veterans remember things from decades ago because the most significant things we experience get imprinted on our memories. And even if all of that weren't enough, remember that Luke wasn't just relying on interviews for his eyewitness testimony. He was also using these many written sources, which were written down even earlier. And so the time gap between the events happening and those different sources getting written down is actually even smaller than 30 years. The time gap becomes minuscule. In fact, this is how even the atheist historian Bart Ehrman puts it. With respect to Jesus, we have numerous independent accounts of his life in the sources lying behind the Gospels. He's talking about the sources that Luke used and the writings of Paul, sources that originated in Jesus' native tongue, Aramaic, and that can be dated to within just a year or two of his life long before the religion moved to convert pagans in droves. Historical sources like that, he says, are pretty astounding for an ancient figure of any kind. So we've seen something of Luke's background. We've seen something of Luke's methodology. But what about Luke's purpose? I'll read again from verse 3 and see if you can see it. Luke says, With this in mind, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. 
Now, we don't know who this Theophilus dude was. Apart from these two mentions at the start of Luke and Acts, we don't have any other information about him. And so, you know, people speculate quite possibly a wealthy patron of Luke who'd come to know Jesus and was sponsoring Luke's writing of these works. You know, papyrus wasn't cheap back then. But to be honest, we just don't know, and so there's not much point speculating. But what we do know from these verses is Luke's purpose. He wrote this gospel so that he, and so that we, might have certainty about Jesus. That's why he so carefully investigated. That's why he wrote up an orderly account. It's so that Theophilus and others, including us, might have certainty about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Uh, Now, it was a long reading, and we don't have time to go through the next 34 verses of Luke chapter 1 that we had read out in depth. But it's worth looking at briefly, because in this opening section of Luke's account, he gives us two pictures of how we might respond to the message of Jesus. Uh, There are two people, Zechariah, if you scan your uh, eyes over the passage, Zechariah in verses 5 to 25, and Mary in verses 26 to 38. Both have an angel appear to them. Both are shocked. Both angels announce a birth. For Zechariah, he's told that his elderly wife will become pregnant miraculously and, and give birth to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And Mary is told that she, a virgin, will miraculously become pregnant and give birth to Jesus. Now, on one level, both of them respond a similar way. They're both shocked. But on another level, they respond quite differently. Zechariah's response is recorded for us in verse 18. Have a look. Verse 18, he's given the announcement, and this is his response. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. What was Zachariah's response? He did not believe. Uh, he asks for a sign. And so, ironically, uh, he is given a sign to make him sure. He was made mute for the next nine months until the baby was born. Not quite what he bargained for. So Zechariah didn't believe, but Mary did. She's told to give birth to a son, to name him Jesus, and that he'll be the son of God, and king over a kingdom that will never end. And her response is recorded in verse 34. She says, How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will shadow you, and the power of the Most High will shadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So, here we see a contrast, don't we? Uh, Mary does believe, while Zechariah doesn't. Now, you could look at this as Luke throwing shade on people who doubt. Like, Zechariah is condemned because he didn't believe on the spot, while Mary is commended for her blind faith, just leaving whatever she's told without asking questions. But that's not actually what's happening here. 
I mean, have a look what Mary actually says. Yes, she does believe, and by verse 38, she's on board. But her initial response in verse 34, she says, how will this be? I'm a virgin. She doesn't say, this can't be, but she's struggling to believe, isn't she? She's like, hey, I'm no biology expert, but I've got some questions. So this isn't a blind faith, is it? That just takes everything at face value without thinking or without asking questions. No. She not only has questions, but is also willing to ask them. And Mary is a great model for us in this regard. She's a great model for us, not of blind faith, but of a thoughtful and questioning faith that does ask the questions and yet does choose to believe. You know, we want Uni Church to be a place where people are welcome to bring their questions and their doubts and their uncertainties. We want Uni Church to be a place where you can believe and still have questions. Those two are compatible. It's a place where the skeptical and the curious are welcome, a place where you don't have to have all your ducks in a row when it comes to your beliefs about Jesus. We want Uni Church to be a place where you can ask your hard questions, and hey, there won't always be easy answers, because unsurprisingly, hard questions sometimes have hard answers. But Uni Church is a place where we can wrestle with those questions together. So Mary is not an example of blind faith. And neither is Zechariah condemned for his unbelief. He is rebuked, don't get me wrong. He is challenged to reconsider his unbelief. But he's not condemned. And as the story goes on, and as we'll see next week, Zechariah does believe in the end. So if you're here tonight and you don't yet believe in Jesus, Luke isn't condemning you, but he is challenging you to reconsider. It's not a condemnation, but an invitation to look again. So that just as Luke himself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, you too might carefully investigate the evidence for Jesus as we work through Luke's gospel over the coming months. But as we do, Luke chapter 1 is also a challenge for all of us, each one of us, to not only consider the evidence and what is written down, but also to consider our own hearts. Because here's the thing, we all like to think that we're highly rational. We all like to think that we're purely about the evidence. But the reality is none of us are impartial. We all have biases. We all have presuppositions. We all have desires and prior commitments that predispose us either for something being true or against it. We all have, if you like, glasses on, and those lenses are tinted and have a big impact on the way we view the evidence. Think about Zechariah and Mary. They were both presented with the same kind of evidence. Both of them had an angel appear to them, which itself is a miraculous thing, right? Like, they're both shocked. It's not like that just happened all the time back then. No. They both had a very similar experience, and yet they responded differently. So why? Why? Why the difference in response? The difference wasn't in the amount of evidence they had in front of them. The difference was in their hearts. You know, sometimes people think, if I could just have an indisputable miracle, then I would believe. You know, if I could have an angel directly come and tell me about Jesus, then I would believe in him. But Zachariah's story bursts that bubble and shows that it's just not true. Because even in the face of very strong evidence, if deep down we don't want it to be true, 
we'll always find a reason not to believe. And Jesus himself makes this exact point in Luke 16. In Luke 16, Jesus tells uh, the story of a rich man who lives a life of indulgence, but then he dies and is in torment in Hades. And he asks Abraham to send someone to warn his five brothers who are still alive so that they won't also come to this place of torment that he's in. But Abraham replies and says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. That's the Old Testament part of the Bible, the scriptures that would warn them about how to trust in God. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. The rich man says, no, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that if someone won't listen to the evidence that they can can read right in front of them, God's word that he's given to us, that is trustworthy, if someone won't listen to that, then they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Because the problem is not a lack of evidence, but rather our own hearts and the lenses through which we choose to see the evidence. And of course, Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said that, because later Jesus did rise from the dead, and there's very good evidence for it, and yet people still choose not to believe. Because think about it. Because of who Jesus claims to be, Because Jesus claims to be not just a good moral teacher, but as the angel announced to Mary in Luke 1, Jesus is a king whose reign will never end. Because Jesus claims to be king, that gives each of us a strong ulterior motive not to take the evidence for Jesus seriously. Because deep down in each one of us, we want to be king of our own lives. We want to be in charge. We want to call the shots for ourselves. And Jesus claim to kingship is a direct challenge to that desire, which means we're not impartial as we might like to think. The problem is not a lack of evidence, but rather our hearts and the lens through which we choose to view the evidence. But Luke chapter 1 is an invitation. Luke has researched and written these things carefully based on first-hand eyewitness testimony. And why, he's, why has he done it? So that we might have certainty. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home, uh, but you're having a lot of doubts. Maybe you've come from a non-religious background, maybe gone to a religious school and it didn't make much sense to you. Or maybe you've walked away from the church and you're open to considering things again. Or maybe you do believe, but you just have a lot of questions. But whatever your situation invite you to join us over the coming months as we look again at Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer to close. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your kindness in revealing yourself to us in the person of Jesus. Father, thank you for your patience with us. We confess Uh, that we are slow to believe the words that you've given us about Jesus, um, and that it's often often difficult to find ourselves trusting you. Father, uh, give us a self-awareness to see that we're not as impartial as we like to think, but that we do have ulterior motives, that each one of us, there's a part of us that wants to be in charge of our own lives instead of trusting in you and letting Jesus be in charge.
Father, in a, in a room like this, uh, many of us will be coming from different places. And so regardless of our background, uh, we pray that we'd be able to come together to take uh, Luke's gospel seriously. And that over the coming weeks, each one of us, no matter where we're at, might be able to investigate Jesus more deeply, understand him and know him and see him face to face so that we might come away and not just learn more about Jesus, but be changed by him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.